Thanks for downloading this episode from Teachers Talk Radio. You can find the full schedule and listen back to all our shows at ttradio.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening, edgy folk. I hope you are well. It is Wednesday. It is the late show. And Tom Hopkins Burke is going to be with you momentarily to talk about the importance of Holocaust education this evening. A very important topic, and I think this is going to be a very worthwhile listen, so I'm not going to prattle on. Instead, I'm going to hand over straight away. Good evening, Tom. Good evening. Um, I'm very well, thank you. And So, yeah, good evening, everybody. It's the 31st of January, the never-ending month um, is finally coming to an end, tomorrow being the 1st of February. And welcome to tonight's Late Show on Teachers Talk Radio. Um, tonight, we're going to be talking about the importance of Holocaust education. Um, Saturday was Holocaust Memorial Day, and it's a very interesting moment, I think, in terms of Holocaust education and also wider um, beliefs and sort of, you know, the you know we're going to look at towards the end of the show what's happening in America, where one in five young people in America um, think the Holocaust was a myth. And even more people think it um, was an exaggeration. And we've seen some interesting new polling today um, with some huge, take some huge pinch of salt, but around two thirds of young people in the UK believe that a strong single leader um, would be preferable to a parliamentary system. So we're living in very fraught times when, and History has never been more important in order to learn from some of the mistakes of the past. And I'm delighted to be joined by two guests today, um, one of whom is already connected, uh, Dom Townsend, and also James Griffiths is um, here as well. All he has to do is press the request button on the bottom left and we'll be able to bring him in. Um, A bit of housekeeping to start off, of course. Um, Do check out our latest top 10 blog. Um, of the top 10 shows um, broadcast on Teachers Talk Radio by download numbers um, in January 2024. We've got some absolute crackers on there. Um, For example, we've got a show on teaching tips of 2024, which made it number two, talking about things like modelling, visualisers, mini whiteboards, things like that. Um, We've got shows on ECTs and burnout. We've got shows on... um, neurodivergent educators we've got shows on the importance of rest we've got of course sam chrome's show with Catherine taylor on the power of teams as i've said already my book of 2023 was sam chrome's power of teams such an incredible book and i learned so much about the importance of you know effective teams and important team leadership in that show we'll hear more much more about john cat later uh, but for now we've got james and we've got dom on the the line so hopefully if they can unmute themselves and we'll be able to hear from them um dom since you connected first um let's see if we can hear from you first good evening dom good evening tom how are you very well how are you yeah i'm very good thank you thank you for having me on oh no absolute pleasure um you're delighted to have you on um, just for people who don't know you dom um, do you want to introduce yourself yeah, so um, I'm Dominic, or, or you call me Dom. Uh, so I am a lead UCL Holocaust Beacon School teacher at Nottingham University Samworth Academy in Nottingham. Uh, so in 2021, my school took part in the UCL Beacon School program and became one of over 200 uh, schools that are responsible for being a beacon school for outstanding Holocaust curriculum in the local communities and further afield. 
Um, I'm also associated with another national project at the moment with uh, Nick Weverall at Royal Wooten Bassett Academy called the Holocaust, their family and me and us, in which we're reteaching the lives of key individuals. And from my perspective, we're doing it from the perspective of the deaf community, as our school has a focused provision unit for the deaf. So we're looking at the, the stories that are being forgotten, in a sense, um, of the Jewish deaf community, because for a long time they've been put under the title of uh, simply disabled. So that's the role I'm doing. In other roles I have in school, I'm head of humanities and social sciences, ITT coordinator and lead subject tutor for the Nottinghamshire Torch skit as well as a, being a school mentor. So hopefully I can bring a fair bit to the conversation today. Certainly got some outstanding credentials and yeah, certainly very well qualified to talk on this. We've also got James as well. Uh, good evening, James. Good evening, Tom. How are you? Very well. How are you? Yeah, good. Thank you. Thanks again for having me on. And uh, hello to Dom. Turns out we're both in the same trust. So that's a bit of a coincidence. Fantastic. Any, anything else you'd like our listeners to know about you, James? Yeah. Hi. Um, so, yeah, I'm currently deputy head teacher at the Southern School in Newark, um, which is part of the Nova Education Trust. Um, I've been there for a couple of years, but prior to that, um, I spent nearly six years working. I, I know we're not allowed to mention organisations, but I'll mention it one off the National Holocaust Centre, where I was the director of learning uh, at that organisation and spent a, a significant amount of time uh, working with organisations across the UK to engage schools with Holocaust education and uh, cascade best practice on how to teach it. Yes, uh, no, no, thank you. We've got two incredibly well qualified guests, I think, to talk about this. And, I, you know, I really wanted to bring this before. I remember a couple of yeah, it was a couple of years ago. I hosted a late late on this um, nine o'clock on the wonderful world of Podbean, and I had the um, excellent Kate Jones on as well, talking about um, Holocaust education. So it's nice to bring uh, the conversation back. Is you know we have a new theme for Holocaust um, Memorial Day this year, the fragility of freedom, and it, I'm looking forward to ninety minutes where we can really delve into some important issues. I think with curriculum, with pedagogy, and with other aspects of the Holocaust as well. Now, for those people who are listening back or listening live who are not history teachers although I noticed that Chris is here and he is definitely a history teacher and of course Tom Rogers is here and he is a history teacher as well um, if you're not a history teacher you may not quite know the intricacies of our key stage three national curriculum now not all schools have to follow the national curriculum um, because some schools are academies and free schools but nonetheless um, Ofsted look for a school that meets the breadth and ambition or similar breadth and ambition to the national curriculum. Um, within the key stage three national curriculum for history, um, the Holocaust is the only compulsory part. So as history departments, we have to teach certain aspects of history, like the development of church and um, state and society, or um, a study, um, a wider world study, but actually the only named aspect of the past that we have to teach precisely is the Holocaust. Um, if I start with Dom, then what, why is the Holocaust the only compulsory part of a key stage three national curriculum for history? And if there's been talks in the last sort of few years about making things like perhaps the transatlantic enslavement or, you know, the British Empire, compulsory aspects of the key stage three national curriculum. If we did that, would that diminish the historical significance of the Holocaust, which is currently the only compulsory part of a key stage three national curriculum? So, Dom, if I could start with you on that one. 
Yeah, uh, so essentially in 1991, after a cross-party uh, decision, it was agreed that they would make Holocaust education compulsory. And since then, obviously, the Holocaust education has gone under uh, a range of reviews and research-based um, surveys to see what pupils understand and what a classroom teacher understands about it. And I know in particular in 2009, there was a university institute, uh, obviously I won't name, but they uh, they performed a survey. And I know that survey showcased a lack of knowledge and understanding of how to deliver Holocaust education in schools in a successful way. So for me, that's one thing. And then I think it's fair to say that in regards to the, the follow-up question, uh, as we're becoming more of a, this modern day generation, uh, have much greater interest in social and historical justice and um, I think now the the themes of the British Empire and transatlantic enslavement are becoming more prominent. And for me, in terms of the answer to would it water down the importance of the Holocaust, the answer is no. The for me, the British Empire and and um, his transatlantic transatlantic enslavement they stand alone in their own right. And in a way, they can actually complement each other through emerging themes that we and myself look at in school. So the oppression of different groups, the forced changes to culture, society, etc. But as I say, they stand alone as respective topics in, in school. And But it is important that we as teachers and as future generations remember all of it. And I would say that the majority of schools now do teach the British Empire and transatlantic enslavement. But at the same time, there is that question out there of, how is it being delivered? Is it linking it back to um, the correct themes, not just teaching it from a, a very British perspective? And so perhaps moving forward, we need some more um, national research projects done on how are the British Empire and uh, transatlantic enslavement being taught in schools? And is there a better way to go about it and to train up uh, schools and, and teachers in that manner? So that's mm. that's my view on it. Yeah, I mean, the whole aspect of sort of teaching complex histories, you know, that's well, it is another show. I've got it planned for the end of March where we're hoping to get a few teachers, more history teachers on um, to talk about a show which I've sort of penciled in the title Beyond the Balance Sheet, Teaching the British Empire in Schools. Um, and, you know, I, from my perspective as a history teacher, we've sort of revamped how we teach transatlantic enslavement um, with sort of a, you know, with uh, weaving through sort of resistance as become thread, um, at, you know, at all stages of transatlantic enslavement, how did enslaved people fight back? How did they resist? Um, and that's sort of been the way we've approached it. James, anything you wanted to add on this? Yeah, I think, um, as you say, it, it is the only uh, compulsory part of the national curriculum. Um, for me, I don't think it really matters whether it's compulsory or not compulsory. It really comes down to the the, the the subject knowledge of teachers and and the, the pedagogical approaches around it um, because we can still have you know teachers who find it very difficult to teach um, regardless of whether it's you know compulsory or not compulsory um, a couple of points to pick up I think the reason it's there as you say there's been a lot of uh, work done on the significance of the Holocaust and you, as, as you say it's got wide wide ranging significance um, uh, and quite complex really to to, to teach it and understand, you know, it can bring out, you know, if taught well, it really, you can talk about, you know, the fragility of society, how, you know, we can take our institutions, our democracy for granted, and we've got to be careful with that because, 
uh, things can break down quite easily. I think the thing with teaching the Holocaust as well, and, and, and again, we need to distinguish because we talk about the Holocaust as an event sort of that begins from about the mid of 1941, but we also need to go back and look much further than that because we're looking ultimately at human behaviour. Um, and, you know, it's often talked about that we, you know, the Holocaust is taught from a perpetrator standpoint, but it's more important than that. It's about looking at human behaviours of perpetrators, but as I'm sure Tom will 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 talk about as well, the, the role of bystanders, the role of, um, you know, the Jewish community themselves. Um, so there's there's quite a number of areas of significance there. But again, I'll come back and I'll probably mention this a few times tonight. You know, it's like many topics. Tom's mentioned about the British Empire, about the transatlantic slave trade. It's really about the, the strength of subject knowledge for, for subject teachers to deliver these topics, um, you know, soundly to students so that misconceptions aren't created and embedded. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Well, I was I've been teaching about bystanders this week, actually. And one of the things where, you know, I'm, I'm very sort of upfront with, you know, a lot of misconceptions. I, I sort of stand there and I go, look, a lot of people think this, but actually the reality is this. And I go, well, actually, most German people did know about the Holocaust and, you know, most of them are bystanders. And because we've learned about Nazi Germany, we can delve into why that was the case. Um, so from that sort of subject knowledge perspective then survey 2021 ucl um of 2000 adults showed that less than half of respondents knew that six million jewish people killed during the holocaust only one quarter were aware of the meaning of kinder transport so what misconceptions do young people tend to have about the holocaust not just young people i suppose but maybe their parents and as well um, what misconceptions do we think are most common and as teachers we have to plan for misconceptions and preconceptions in our classrooms how can we plan for to address these misconceptions in our teaching. James, if I could start with you on that one and then we can go to Tom. Yeah, you've mentioned uh, mentioned a couple of things there, Tom, in terms of misconception. I'd say the biggest one that, you know, often comes out uh, from my own experience, but also, as you mentioned, you know, the survey is is the role of of, of obviously Hitler in this. You know, a lot of, a lot of children um, actually think everything began with Hitler, um, that, you know, the anti-Semitism that was faced only for, first came about in 1933 with Hitler, or before 1933, but again, linking it to Hitler. So that's a common misconception that really needs to be picked out. But again, the difficulty with this topic is you need quite a bit of time because you can go back 2,000 years and look at the evolution from anti-Judaism as a religion to, to anti-Semitism in the, you know, the 19th century, you know, Darwinism, etc. So it's a complex topic, but I think we do owe students a, you know, a disservice if we don't really teach the complexities of it, uh, because otherwise they can leave with that misconception that actually this was just a, a you know, an event in, in history that lasted a few years and that was the end of it. But actually, you know, it's got roots um, thousands of years old so you know hitler and anti-semitism is a key one uh, th there's many others but one one i want to pick up was because you've just mentioned this uh, and and again tom's mentioned this with the role of the british empire we can it, we can very easily paint a picture especially if we talk about the kinder transport of britain playing this very positive role in 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 the events um you know accepting nearly ten thousand jewish children to the uk um so again whilst the kinder transport 
doesn't form part of the Holocaust. It is a key part that needs to be looked at. What role did, did uh, you know, nation states play play in this? Again, um, and again, I'm sure you'll open this up a bit further. Um, we've got the Evian Conference in '38. Uh, again, looking at that role um, within within uh, nation states. Just lastly, before before we go go on, I think the other the other thing I'm picking out with my students at the moment is um, this real key point with regards to 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 Hitler that actually. Um, I'm trying to think how to word this correctly now is um that he he from day one wanted to murder the Jews. And it's really important to look at that timeline of the timeline of what was going on from 1933 in terms of the events to exclude Jews to try and enforce them to leave the country and mm -hmm. how, how that evolves with, with, with the kindred with the Kristallnacht in '38, in terms of seeing that as a potential turning point, which leads to the kinder transport, but then differentiating that from mid '41 onwards, when we start to get into that sort of systematic uh, mass murder. Mm. Yeah, um, massively important points there. Um, and if I could go to Dom then on this one to see if he can add anything else. Um, which I'm looking at another survey from 2016 of 10,000 students in English secondary schools. Um, it's quite a famous one, I think, in terms of Holocaust education. Um, showed that 68% of pupils did not know what anti-Semitism is, and one third of pupils greatly underestimated the number of Jewish people murdered. Um, any other misconceptions, then, Dom, that young people tend to have about the Holocaust? Yeah, so for me, one of the a few that our pupils tend to pick up on, it's either through social media or other forms, is, for example, Hitler was Jewish himself, or um, that all Nazis were evil Nazis. And obviously, um, there's that misconception out there that if a Nazi uh, refused to um, kill a Jewish person, they would therefore be killed themselves. That's not the case. Uh, so there's ones we have like that. There's often, We often get misconceptions in terms of the camps and making sure we explicitly teach the difference between the types of camps uh, they had to go to. And then there's that um, elephant in the room of the boy in the striped pyjamas as well and the impact that has in um, causing misconceptions for pupils. Um, you also asked uh, the question of how can they be planned for, and um, one of the first lessons I do in particular to root out those misconceptions is looking at pre-war Jewish life through photographs. So I show the class a picture of Leon Greenman, for example, and um, ask them just to simply label what they think is the, the picture showing and who they are and so on. And um, one of the actual misconceptions that came up was they look Jewish and I questioned the class why do they look Jewish and they said we'd seen on TikTok and, and social media that Jewish people have larger pointed noses and that they're, they're rich and so on so straight away we we hit those misconce uh, misconceptions on the head and made sure pupils left knowing um, they were incorrect and, and more importantly where to actually get a reliable source of information from and then with misconceptions, I often tr try to go into the lesson knowing the obvious ones and address them from the start. Um, so we're clear from the offset rather than trying to pick them up constantly as we go along. Um, 
But as you say, there's that uh, survey out there, and I know there's going to be another national survey this summer they've redesigned, uh, which obviously everyone should get involved with where possible as well. Yeah, um, definitely. Now, this show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Now, James, if we could um, sort of bounce off something that Dom was talking about, about students bringing in sort of inaccurate and defensive stereotypes about Jewish people into the classroom. We've seen, I think, in the last few years, for various reasons, an undoubted rise in anti-Semitism, um, both online and within wider society. I quoted the... Um, I think it was an economist poll um, in America. One in five young Americans think that the Holocaust was a myth, um, but it never actually happened. Um, we know that you know young people may have been radicalised in some senses, and if you get if anti-Semitic beliefs or perhaps Holocaust um, Holocaust myths or Holocaust denialism or sort of you know claims that it's been exaggerated, etc. If, if if a child says something like this in lesson. What should a teacher do? So, what we're trying to do, we're often when we've got young people, even adults that who are, you know, maybe denying that the Holocaust happened or are showing those sort of uh, extreme views, potential, you know, as you mentioned, their potential of radicalization, often is coming from a starting point of them feeling, you know, that they're you know, that their views are not being listened to within society, that they're feeling marginalised. Uh, a lot of these come, you know, did when, in my previous role, we did uh, quite a bit of research and much of these stereotypes and views can be formed by by the age of 10. A lot of them come from, we talk about, you know, social media plays a much bigger part today, but a lot of them can come from the home, from family. Um, and I think the key thing is, and putting safeguarding and prevent agendas aside for a moment, because they've they've got to stay in the background there, and, and they're there for us as teachers to use. But it's about us creating the space within within lessons for students to have the chat, to, uh, the opportunity to talk, to debate, to put their arguments forward. As history teachers, uh, English teachers, it's about us developing the students' skill set to put their arguments forward, to put, to back them up with the evidence. Um, and then for us to challenge those um, those views with counter evidence, um, and and the key is to try and bring bring students around. Now, obviously, if we're seeing really extreme uh, views on on this, and like you say, we do have our safeguarding procedures in place that we can re report to designate the safeguard leads, and we've got the the prevent agenda um, to to explore that, but I think the key for me is is them feeling that they're in a safe environment to uh, be listened to, to be heard, uh, and to and to develop those those arguments. Um, yeah. Mm. Interestingly, Tom Rogers has tweeted and said uh, he's met Leon Greenman and he interviewed him one on one for his university dissertation. It's amazing, Tom. Um, I, I've made I've had definitely had students crying in my classroom when I've told them about what happened to young Barney. Um, and that also, I think, is, is an important sort of thing in terms of hinterland knowledge, in terms of understanding concentration camps and death camps and sort of, um, you know, the fate of those who ended up um, 
there as part of the Holocaust as well and why young sort of toddlers and babies like little two-year-old Barney Greenman were actually the most vulnerable um, people and actually would be the first to be killed in camps as well. Um, sort of, you know, we've talked about sort of how we might address these things. I'm, I'm going to go to Dom again. Um, I, I, I'll read this question in here. Are, are there any particular teaching methods or pedagogies that are particularly suited to teaching the Holocaust? Does it depend on the students in front of you? Um, yeah, I mean, is there anything you want to say on that? Yeah, of course. Um, so for me, it's the personal stories and accounts that are central to my own curriculum journey at school. And it's those approaches that enable a much more like pronounced and thought-provoking account of the Holocaust and the, the impacts of it. And I've begun myself at sort of adding that into other uh, topics we teach in school as well. And I find the use of those stories and images and artwork and other forms of media available to us sort of enable us to um approach all age uh so not age ranges ability ranges uh and help pupils to sort of access the curriculum in different levels of uh capacity so for me the the most important thing though is and a message to anyone who may still be doing it is to stop the use of atrocity images in in the classroom because i'm sure 10 15 years ago teachers look back upon it and think it's not the right it was the almost the right thing to do at the time but Obviously, the use of those images to shock pupils then dehumanizes the the victims of the Holocaust, and it's the stories that bring them to life again, and and give them uh, to humanize them again, and to give them a name and a story that can be remembered. So, for me, it's the the stories that we use in the classroom that we are our foundations, and then we build our Holocaust work around it. Yeah, I think looking looking at the humans behind some yeah the humans behind the history, I think is really important. Um, Sam's also called in. Sam, if you'd like to contribute to anything at any point, um, hopefully you should be able to see at the bottom as a heart with a plus. And if you just raise your hand, which is the one on the right there, then I'll bring you in on anything as well. Um, we've also got some other um, listeners live. Of course, the show will be available on Catch Up On Demand on the website. Uh, but if you are listening live, very good evening. If you'd like to contribute to the discussion, then do use the speech bubble on the bottom right-hand side um, to tweet along or request to speak like Sam has done um, by pressing the microphone icon on the bottom left of your screen um, as well. Um, I want to talk about the wider curriculum, really, and talking about the opportunities that are available to students. Now, we can't talk about particular places um, and we can't really talk about particular organisations, but what should the purpose really, you know, of a school trip based around the Holocaust be? Um, we could be talking about going abroad, we could maybe in the UK. Um, what sort of opportunities should students be able to have as part of that wider curriculum, whether that's trips or extracurricular or anything else? James, if you want to start on that one and then go back to Dom and maybe to Sam. Yeah, OK, cheers, Tom. Um, I think, like, like, like any topic, the opportunity for students actually to learn outside of the classroom is, you know, is, is, is memorable. It stays with them for a lifetime. Um, but, you know, even in this, you know, teaching this really difficult topic, I just want to pick up what um, Dom was saying. You know, I think key to this topic, and we're still just about fortunate enough that we have survivors still with us, 
is those survivor stories. So, you know, any opportunity to visit uh, to visit a museum, to visit a learning centre where, where they can, you know, meet the survivor. I think it's one thing listening to testimonies, and we can do that in, in, in school, but to actually come up face-to-face with a survivor who experienced it um, actually creates that very personal connection. And when we talk about significance of the Holocaust um, and, and, and students thinking differently, because when we, like you say, when we talk about learning, learning's a change in long-term memory. You know, what we want is to change young people's thinking. We want to transform that. And actually, you speak to any student who's met a survivor and they say that's transformational to them um, because of that personal level. So I think any visit like that, having the opportunity with survivors key, that's not going to be with us probably for a lot longer, um, unfortunately. Um, but also, I think, you know, the opportunity um, you've mentioned going abroad, you know, to visit um, places like, you know, like Auschwitz, Birkenau. But there's also other op- opportunities to visit camps. And I think what that does, it really, um, you know, I remember visiting myself and it's the a very emotional connection to what's going on. So, you know, we as teachers, we're able to build that into the curriculum and offer that um, something a little bit different that really makes students think. I think just just the last one on it, and, and again, this can be done in school, but I think it's the opportunity for young people to work with people who are not their teachers, because having worked both in school and out of school, um, you sometimes find the students, they don't want to, you know, I'm not going to listen to the teacher. What's the teacher? No, then they meet the survivor or they meet the educator in, in you know, a museum or, or an organisation and they sit up and listen a little bit more. So I think they, they're key uh, ingredients into a really successful curriculum. Yeah, um, I, I agree with all of that. Dom, um, anything else you want to say about sort of the power of sort of a wider curricular opportunities and the extracurricular um opportunities as well available to students when it comes to sort of expanding horizons on Holocaust education? Yeah, so uh, I 100% agree with James in terms of the Holocaust survivor testimonies. It's um, we, um, this year I've arranged with a particular um, institute to have our entire trust and obviously James's school is invited to this listen to um, one of the Holocaust survivors as an entire trust. So um hopefully that'll be an incredible experience they can take away and the ones in person as he says they leave a room silent they leave it captivated and it it has a lasting legacy on the pupils and obviously there are three incredible centers uh i won't name them but there's one in london one in newark and one in huddersfield where you can um visit and the opportunity is there to meet survivors as well and then one in the lake district uh, as well so for me, visiting those places myself, they they have a lasting impact on you as an adult, never mind as a, a child. And as he says, to go to those spaces, to interact with the images, the objects that we we can provide images in the classroom and videos, but to, to see if an object face-to-face linked to the Holocaust or models and so on, as certain places have, it, has a, it heightens uh, what you've understood in the classroom. And uh, as I sort of mentioned, I'm involved in the project, which I won't name, um, but it's opportunities like that project to interact with the wider commute Jewish community or family members and to take part in unique opportunities. And even if as a school, you can run your own extracurricular club linked to the Holocaust and 
build a project around creating a a memorial or or poetry or anything like that it all has an impact and it it widens people's experiences because then they have an opportunity to, to speak for themselves and learn to be um, global citizens of the future. Definitely, that sort of wide, wider ambition is um, very important. Sam, um, good evening. Oh, you know you're trying to raise your hand. Anything you'd like to add to the discussion so far? Um, yeah, definitely. So, um, <clears throat> sorry. Um, I'd probably echo the point about um, meeting survivors. We had one in last week called John Fieldsend. And he was part of the um, the kinder transport, so he was really interesting. Just like you guys were saying, it leaves the kids leaving in silence. Um, I think one thing that's important is looking at this definition of perpetrator. Um, one of the things the kids often say in our class is, I would never do that. I'd never be part of that. I'd never stand up or support that. Um, but we look at things such as Police Battalion 101, where ordinary people were not even coerced into doing it, but they you know, let themselves get involved in it. They let themselves become part of it. I think it's that idea that we've got to be careful in thinking people would stand up to the Nazis or people would um, rise up and automatically resist because that report in 2016 found a lot of people didn't. Yeah, I, 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 not, I don't think part of teaching about the Holocaust, but I do sometimes, when we talk about sort of herd mentality and group mentality and things, I should, there's, there's videos and things where you've got a group of actors, seven or eight actors, and then one person who isn't an actor, and they're all being asked questions, and they start off with sensible answers, and they end up being like, you know, what's the capital of France? And they and the actors all go, one at a time, Berlin, 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 Berlin. And then you've got this one person who's got very confused, but then ends up saying Berlin, because everybody else has said it. And it's that idea, really, I, you know, I teach um, Russian history, uh, A-level, um, 19th or 20th century, and I've taught Chinese history as well. And it's that idea that you want, you, you end up doing what other people are doing around you. It's exactly the same when it comes to behaviour in schools, but actually we talk a lot about learned behaviours and how students tend to mimic other students. Um, and, yeah, it's that idea that actually it takes somebody very, very brave and somebody you know, uh, to actually stand up and do things differently to the majority. Um, on, let's keep going then. Um, let's delve more into curriculum then, because um, schools are under significant pressure with key stage three curriculum. Um, most schools are now teaching a three-year key stage three. Some are teaching a two-year key stage three still. Um, some schools only get an hour a week at key stage three. Others are lucky to get three hours a fortnight or even two hours a week. Um, and, you know, schools are expected to teach a lot of things in their history curriculums. Key stage three curriculum may not quite be as packed as the key stage four curriculum, and we might talk about that later. Um, and while some schools are fortunate to be able to spend a large number of lessons on the Holocaust, others may not be as lucky. So let's say you had four lessons to teach about the Holocaust. What would you want students to get out of those four lessons um, and what's essential to include in that for students to understand the Holocaust? Dom, if you want to start on that one. If he's found, he finds a mute button. Sorry, was that to me? The radio broke up, so apologies. Yeah. yeah. Um, so four uh, things I would focus on. Uh, so first of all, for me, pre-war Jewish life is a must because quite a lot of the time the 
stories or tales we teach of the Jewish community are often negative in in history. When you think back to uh, sort of the death of Christ, whether it's the Black Death and Jews being blamed for um, the poisoning of the water and so on. So for me, making sure pupils know that Jewish people lived ordinary lives were just like you and I um, before any sort of Nazi involvement is significant um, in terms of their understanding. So I always start off with pre-war Jewish life, and that's something I would always do. It's important then, another lesson I would do is ensure that pupils understand what anti-Semitism is and what we mean by a Holocaust or a genocide, because it has so many wider implications in uh, the wider world. I also would want to make sure we explore the concept of upstander and bystander and in um, in the Holocaust, because again, it has a role in terms of them being global citizens. And then the final one, there's so many different ones I've got on my curriculum, but I think I would have a look at pre-war, uh, post-war Jewish life as well, or post-war Holocaust for the Jewish community, because again, it leads to so many discussions and links to the refugee crisis, for example. Uh, and for pupils to understand that the the the, tra the trauma the Jewish community faced going from pre-war Jewish life through the Holocaust uh, and all the way to the end. And obviously that kind of links back to British involvement, um, which I'm sure you'll speak about later on. So they're my four particular ones, if, if I had to choose just four. And James, anything you'd do differently? Anything you'd go along with? I'm just glad you asked um, Dom first, uh, because that's a real difficult one. Uh, most of the ones are the same. I think probably one, two, two key ones I pick up slightly differently is to look at the evolution of um, the treatment towards Jews um, when the Nazis came into power, showing how that changed from that exclusion right through to obviously the uh, post 41 when it comes into uh, mass murder but I'd also want to explore and, and and Dom's alluded to this as well about the the role of nation states what response did countries like Britain give to what they and America you mentioned America to what was going on uh, in Germany at the time because both countries obviously um, um, didn't agree with what was going on but what action did they take to, to help? Yeah, definitely. I ask this question because we only we we only have it. We teach three. You say three, but we only have an hour a week, so we essentially have the same amount of teaching time as a school with a two-year key stage three which has three hours a fortnight and we uh, we only if plus uh, include not including the assessment which is lesson five we only have four hours on the holocaust and you know we we've really struggled to try to sort of create um an inquiry which sort of you know which works and this year you know we we, we sort of start with what 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 is it about nazi anti-semitism which was different from anti-semitism in the previous thousand years and then we look at sort of the escalation of persecution from nuremberg laws to Kristallnacht, and then we sort of look at the final solution and the role of bystanders during the final solution and we also look at um you know responses of britain and also others um um looking at some examples of um, people in different countries, some of whom um, tried to save Jewish people but faced barriers, others um, of whom turned a 
blind eye as well. Um, it's very difficult to do it in such a short amount of time. I wish we had, you know, six, maybe seven lessons to be able to do it. Um, but, you know, you, there are constraints on departments up and down the country, you know, whole school pressures and, you know, the way in which the months fall really as well. Um, I want to talk more to, broadly to, to about talk. inquiry questions because... Um, you know, you know, history departments, you know, these days at Key Stage 3, you know, well, I say these days, probably since Michael Riley's seminal article all those years ago into the history garden, um, you know, based schemes of learning around inquiry questions, something very different from sort of inquiry-based learning, which um, people who aren't history teachers sometimes get confused when I mention inquiry and they go, oh, we don't really do that. But no, we very much do in history. Um, what inquiry questions have you seen, have you used when you've been teaching the Holocaust? And what what's worked for you in terms of an inquiry question to piece everything together, I suppose? Um, I don't know which one of you wants to start on that one. I'm happy to um, take a volunteer. I don't mind going first, James, if you if that's all right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So for me, my my big picture sort of inquiry question I use year in, year out is why should we not allow the Holocaust to be lost from living memory? Because especially in our own community, because that's what as a school I want to represent is ensuring our community are all sort of invested in Holocaust education. So that way I can take pupils on that journey with that inquiry question and at the end, they can then use terminologies such as upstander, bystander. They can make reference to the key events, the impacts it had upon the Jewish community and the other uh, people deemed as undesirable at the time. So that's our, our bigger picture. But for me, I, I think some schools uh, and teachers sometimes go a bit too bold with their lesson by lesson inquiry questions. And really, it needs to be that really tight niche sort of micro focus in a lesson to ensure pupils walk away with a firm understanding rather than just trying to have a big picture in each lesson of, of what life was like or what events were taking place so they're the two sort of key takeaways for me and and then obviously from my own approaches to it i'm sure james has a uh, different approach potentially it actually it's very similar to you dom i think uh, we we've you know, we've had different experiences over the years. Um, at the moment, we've got one big inquiry question that's broken down throughout the lessons. We're looking at a uh, bit, bit similar to you about the, you know, what, why should we be studying the holiday, Holocaust? What's the importance of it, the legacy of it? Um, you know, previously, I've had questions and I've seen, I've not done all these myself, but I've seen history teachers where their inquiries have, you know, uh, revolved around um, what, why with some Germans bystanders, whilst others were upstanders. Um, again, um, uh, the, the role of the difference between Nazi anti-Semitism um, and, and also how, how could the Holocaust have happened. So diff different ones over time. I think they're, you know, they're, they're very challenging, the inquiry questions. Um, and again, for certain, you know, I'm very fortunate. I hope my head of history is not on you because I go a little bit longer on the Holocaust, spend quite a bit of time on it. Um, but if you haven't got a lot of time, they can be difficult to deliver effectively. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, if if you if you're listening on demand and you've got an inquiry question you'd like to share with us around the Holocaust, but pieces your lessons together, please do tweet us at TT Radio Official or message at 
us at Teachers Talk Radio on LinkedIn as well. Um, I believe we're TT Radio official on Instagram as well. Um, and it's another great opportunity for me to remind you all that this show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. And we had Sam Crome on um, a couple of weeks ago now talking about the power of teams. As I said at the start of the show, Power of Teams was my book of 2023. Absolutely fantastic. I've recommended it to all our middle leaders and um, they, um, you know, some of them read it already and were really, um, you know, really impressed by it in terms of the clarity of the thinking that Sam has about how effective teams work. So I recommend you definitely go and check that one out after the show as well. Um, I, I want to talk about Key Stage 4 then because um, I teach at Excel. Um, I'm not quite, I know that OCR have a 1933 to 1945 Germany unit living under Nazi rule. Um, AQA, for the life of me, I think it starts in 1890. I don't know when it ends. Um, but if we take Edexcel, a Weimar and Nazi Germany unit, 1918 to 1939, it essentially ends at Kristallnacht and there is no mention of the Holocaust, really. Um, and I think if, if but my question would be then, if we're learning a about Nazi Weimar and Nazi Germany at GCSE, um, should we be incorporating the Holocaust into Key Stage 4? James, I don't know if you want to start with that and then we go to Dom. Yeah, th uh, thanks, Tom. So, so I've taught both. I've taught Edexcel. Uh, I'm currently teaching AQA. AQA finishes in 45, 1945. So I do, you know, I do find it very strange, and I found this at the time teaching Edexcel, that you you get to 1939, as you said, and you you're really finishing with Kristallnacht, um, and then you're not going on any further. And, and I and I found at the time, you know, the stu the students want to go further. They're asking you the question, well, are we going to find out, you know, what happened next? And 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 you're not, unfortunately, with that one. So so my simple answer would be, I think Edexcel should extend it, um, just just like AQA do, because you've got to, you've really got to have the full picture. Just that, just as you, you you can't really teach, you know, the years 1941, 42 to 45, and just focus on 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 the narrow definition of the Holocaust. Like Dom's said, you've got to go back thousands of years. You've got to look at the evolution of anti-Semitism. You've got to look at the, the distinctive nature nature of Nazi anti-Semitism. Um, so that that really needs to be built in at key stage four. Um, in all exam boards, if that's what's going to be offered. Um, Dom, do you agree? Any other views? So 100% agree. Um, I do also know from a a, uh, a friend that the there is a particular university institute who has been in touch with the exam boards uh, recently to discuss uh, how they can get more Holocaust uh, studies into the GCSE uh, specifications as well. So hopefully there's something on the horizon with that. But I 100% agree. And at the minute, it's far too superficial. And even if you are doing a great job of it in school, in Key Stage 3, for me, it's important that that journey does continue and all the way through to Key Stage 5, really, and beyond, so that the, the legacy of Holocaust education remains rather than simply stopping uh, if they don't take GCSE history as an option. 
Mm. Um, one of my department works for Ofqua um, on design, on the history specifications and sort of the planning stages. So um, do stay tuned on Teachers Talk Radio for some exclusives which might be coming in the next few months or so, particularly around Edexcel's um, paper three as well and some of the changes we might be seeing on that soon as well. Um, I do want to talk about British um, responses to the Holocaust um, and you know, those, you know, you, many people would have seen at the start of this month, we are in January 2024 still, feels like a lifetime ago now, but, but um, a new film came out, One Life, um, about the life of Nicholas Winton. Um, and for those people who don't know who Nicholas Winton is, a um, very famous television show called That's Life, where Winton, who had saved 669 children via the kinder transport before the Second World War started from Czechoslovakia, um, was surrounded by many of the people who he had saved, um, who were children and were now adults. And Winton had not gone and spoken about his, you know, saving Jewish children, um, but he'd kept records in a scrapbook, um, which he kept in his uh, loft, which his wife then found. Um, and I suppose, is first of all, how, how important are films like One Life in highlighting you know, the atrocities of the Holocaust in the public memory. But also, is there a danger that some films, the obvious one being Boy in the Striped Pajamas, can mislead and misinform the wider public about the Holocaust as well? So how important are these films, but is there a danger that they can mislead? Dom, if you want to start on that, and then James. Yeah, of course. So uh, I can't comment on One Life as uh, it's on my list of films to see in the half term uh, break being a busy teacher and everything. However, I would say that a lot of those Holocaust sort of based films stand alone in relation to the Holocaust. And while they sort of shine a light on events of the, the past, they don't provide that bigger picture. So One Life, as we know, is centered around kinder transport and but then it doesn't cover the same events as films such as Schindler's List or Defiance or The Pianist or Operation Finale. And so each film that does come out does obviously shine a light on uh, and public attention on the Holocaust, but in its own way. And um, obviously in relation to The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, obviously I don't recommend schools use that. And my pupils know that those uh, five words are banned in the classroom and uh, they know the misconceptions of it. And for me, uh, we do a unit or a couple of lessons at the end of our Holocaust topic where we break down the misconceptions in movies and um, get them to apply their concrete knowledge to it. And I can I can tell listeners, if they're not aware, there's a particular group out there, um, big player in Holocaust education, who have got a film review series on YouTube where they break down the misconceptions in films. So... I think as long as we as teachers provide pupils with that secure knowledge of the Holocaust and the dangers of it, I'd like to think they can then watch a film later on in life and be able to recognise that misinformation. And obviously, as James sort of said earlier in regards to just misconceptions in the classroom, for us to allow pupils to discuss films they've seen with us outside of school and uh, have those conversations and break them down together. Um, so that's that's my opinion. Thank you for that. And James, anything you'd agree with? Anything you build on? Yeah, I think just building on the, the fact, you know, every every film, like Dom says, shines a spotlight on on the topic. But each one, as you say, needs to be taken in in its own light. Um, 
you know, I'll pick up the boy in the striped pajamas, then I'll come back to one life because I've actually I've seen one life. You know, I'm in a bit of disagreement on you know completely you know banning the use of it. And I know it's got some really bad press boy in the striped pajamas, but I think it can do what what Don mentioned at the end. I think we can create, we can use it to create to show our young people how to be a good historian because, you know, uh, the book was written. It was never designed to be a book that was necessarily historically accurate. Um, I think he describes it as a fable. Um, but actually, you know, through survivor testimonies, through source work, students can be taught to unpick that book to see where the historical accuracies are or, or not are, as it might be the case. So I think, as you say, it depends how you use uh, use film. Uh, in this sense, um, one life again very interesting. Um, if if you've not seen it, it's definitely a film worth going to see. But again, it really centres on uh, on the, on the role of Sir Nicholas Winton and and like you say, Tom just saving six hundred and sixty nine children. Very emotional film. But again, you've got to be very careful with that because it can develop the emotions and. It actually brings out, even though the film was very good, in my opinion, at showing the barriers that Winton faced from, from the government to allowing these young people to come into the country, it probably can, that message can probably get missed because actually, um, you know, if, if we look at that part of it and the role that Britain and other nations played in this, you know, the Evian Conference was before that, where I think all bar one country had shut the door on Jewish immigration at this point. And and even with Winton, he he fought the barriers of um, you know the children coming on their own, um, the the amount of money they had to pay. I think it was fifty pounds that they had to pay, so there would be no cost uh, to the British state. The the fact that they had to guarantee um, that they would return to to their home countries within twelve months. Obviously, at that point, nobody knew what was what was going to come. Um, but it just shows again the attitudes at the time towards um, towards um, refugees, towards um, that kind of migration, you know. And again, it needs to be put in that wider context. So young people need to understand this coming off the back of you know it wasn't long after the Great Depression, um, huge economic issues and so on. So again, completely agree with Dom. They've got a place, but they've got to be used carefully. And we've got to teach young people how to, you know, enjoy watching, but also to be critical in, in their watching. Yeah, definitely. And it's always, it's very dangerous, I think, sometimes to simplify the past. And I think one of the issues with Winton is it does provide a, a very sort of straightforward narrative, I suppose. Whereas I, I was looking through some archives um, recently and I came across a letter from Church, Prime Minister Churchill in July 1944, um, where he's a letter to somebody in the House of Lords on the topic of a reported massacre of Hungarian Jewish people. And the line from Churchill, which is 44, was, there's no doubt in my mind that we are in the presence of one of the greatest and most horrible crimes ever committed. It has been done by scientific machinery by nominally civilised men in the name of a great state and one of the leading races of Europe. I do not assure you that the situation has received and will receive the most earnest consideration from my colleagues and myself 
but the principal hope of terminating it must remain the speedy victory of the allied nations. And I think that's one of the important teaching points that, you know, our students need to know. Um, as, as one of my year nine said um, yesterday, uh, so you were telling me Britain was a bystander. And yeah, oh, that's one way of putting it. But ultimately, saving Jewish people was not a British war aim. And Churchill promised um, to punish the killers after the war. And we talked about one of the surveys before. And one of the most one of the biggest misconceptions, I think, among young people in Britain today is what Britain actually did during the Holocaust. Um, a lot of young people did thought that Britain didn't know anything about the Holocaust until after the war. And a lot of British, young British children are, you know, very surprised when they find out, well, Britain didn't actually do anything straight away. They wanted to win the war first and punish the killers afterwards as well. Um, if we go very quickly to Dom, then anything you want to say, Dom, on sort of wider British responses to the Holocaust and whether, you know, uh, I know you haven't seen One Life, but focusing on Winton's story, as some schools might do, can perhaps diminish the complexity of the past in terms of those wider British responses to the Holocaust? Yes, I, I agree essentially with James. And um, we do a lesson where we look at the British responses and, and look at the sources and, and break it all down and come to a conclusion as a class whether it was a good enough response. And uh, in a way, I, I, I would um, I'd say that I think those pupils then walk away knowing we shouldn't, or we, I say we as, it, as in Britain, uh, could have done more uh, for the Jewish people and as should the rest of the world in a sense as well. So, um, and then obviously there's the, it, there's more to it than that because I know in the particular museum in London, there's the uh, letter regarding the British government's awareness of Auschwitz-Birkenau and so on as well uh, that we also look at. So, yeah, I, I completely agree with what's being said. Yeah, um, and another thing I want to look at then is perhaps we talk, you know, there's this whole issue about history and memory, and we get we've we've got to a point now where we have no more survivors of the First World War in terms of soldiers, and we see fewer and fewer people wearing poppies and. You know, and it does seem as though the collective memory of the First World War is fast diminishing. Um, and we're going to get to a point where we're going to have no more survivors of the Holocaust available to speak to. And we, you know, and sent, you know, centres across the country have been and already are um, looking at getting in survivors from other genocides as well. And one of the one of the mantras which is often you know associated with the Holocaust is never again. But genocides and other crimes against humanity have taken place since 1945. Um, and so, I want to look at how. Basically, I want to ask how can comparing the Holocaust to other genocides and other crimes against humanity um, help us to understand not just those other genocidal events, but also to understand the particular historical significance of the Holocaust. So, you know, as we've said at the start, it's the only compulsory item on the Key Stage 3 national curriculum at the moment. Um, but also, not only can, not only how can comparing the Holocaust to other genocides help boost understanding, but also, are there any potential pitfalls as well with a comparative approach? Um, 
Dom, I wonder if we wanted to start with that one and then go to James. Yeah, so for, for me, there is a danger um, with this in the sense that as schools, with the Holocaust being a a compulsory element, we, we spend a long time looking at the Holocaust, but then often find ourselves tagging other genocides on at the end of uh, a, a unit. So we just say, there were other genocides since, blah, blah, blah. And the, the, the danger with that is you can't compare the two if you haven't studied the two in depth. So you've either got to teach the Holocaust and another specific genocide in greater depth or potentially not compare them at all because you can then um, bring in too many potential misconceptions yourself and pupils don't aren't able to... You, you shouldn't really be comparing the statistics of a Holocaust compared to uh, another genocide because they're completely different scenarios in a sense. Um, and so I think there has... there Obviously, there is really good work out there in terms of how you approach teaching those genocides but for me an important thing is not to simply tag it on at the end and do a quick comparison and then move on it has to be done well and it has to be done properly over to you james yeah i think you you just hit the nail on the head isn't it it's it's very easy to tag on the the various genocides that have happened since 1945 on on the end but i i couldn't agree with you anymore if if we're gonna if we are gonna go down the road of doing comparisons which i don't like because at the end of the day you know we're talking about uh people who've been murdered whether that's you know the jewish population whether that's the tutsis in rwanda um so to to, to make comparisons i think they're wrong but if we were going to go down that road then dom is exactly right you've got to devote a significant amount of time to each genocide before you can start to make any sort of comparisons between them but i think again for me we're talking here about you know individual lives, so I'm not keen on making those kind of comparisons. And I'm definitely, as I say, I agree with Dom. You know, um, tagging them on at the end is is disrespectful and doing a disservice. Thank you for that. Now I, I can see that Chris Sweetman um, wants to call in, and this would be our fourth person on the line from Nottingham or Nottinghamshire um, tonight. So, um, Chris, I was wondering what you wanted to add to this tonight. Uh, yeah, well, Nottinghamshire has got the Holocaust Centre, and uh, I take it most of you are in uh, schools. I work in a college, and the Holocaust is, is just uh, a tutorial at the time, so there's no kind of in-depth kind of recognition of it uh, as such. And I think, you know, somebody mentioned about Poppy Day and about linking it to the First World War. Well, Poppy Day isn't just about the First World War, it's about the fall and... Uh, from that time, so you could even include, uh, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then we're talking about memory. Well, I suppose I was uh, kind of fortunate in some ways because I'm an old guy now, and uh, in the late seventies, one of uh, uh, a chap who was in a local walking club, he was actually uh, uh, in the liberation of Belson. And uh, you know, you, you're talking about what Britain's new about the Holocaust, uh, are we talking about the general public? Because my father was around there, and he was in the Second World War. He didn't really know anything about that. And certainly this guy who was uh, in the Nottingham Regiment that liberated Belson, he didn't know anything about it until he was at the gates. So there's this kind of hierarchy, and I think we've got it in this country now. 
a hierarchy of, of who knows what. And then we've got the populace, who's not too sure, and who probably doesn't know. And I think we've got to be careful, you know, when we say apportioning blame about, you know, Britain and America and all this. What about the rest of the world? Uh, did they do anything? And uh, the answer is, no, they didn't. And you, you could ask, you know, why didn't uh, the UK or the USA uh, help Hungarians or the Czech, uh, Czechoslovakia? The Hungarians 56, uh, Czechoslovakians in, in 67. It's quite easy to say, well, hang on a minute, well, it's, it's nothing to do with us. And we've got a similar situation with Ukraine as well, haven't we? So there's those people who are, well, it fully supports what Ukraine is. And there's those who think, well, what's the Ukraine to do with the Britain? So mm. the, the, these questions are still here now. They might not have anything to do with the Holocaust, but it's about supporting nations, perhaps in a need, and uh, everyone puts, puts a blind eye. And you could say that with China, you know, some of the things that atrocities of China have done, uh, the West have done a blind eye. And you could say similar things in in, uh, in Saudi Arabia. Mm. I think it's a very interesting point, Chris, about sort of, by, you know, the role of nation states as bystanders, really, and how we, you know, and how we sort of, um, you know, even today, when we sort of look at sort of the role of nation states in sort of international conflicts and actually, you know, the difference between sort of standing up and standing by as well. Um, so thank you for that. That was a really interesting contribution. Um, I just want to, before we talk to um, Catherine, who I've just invited to speak and is going to talk about um, Holocaust education in the USA. Um, I've just got a couple more questions for James and Dom, who have been absolutely fantastic. Thank you very much for giving up your time um, this Wednesday evening. And I want to talk about trainee teachers because history is one of three subjects um in england where we actually get trainee teachers meet you know the number of trainee teachers actually enrolling onto itt programs actually meets the target set out for it. it's only pe and classics um can claim to beat their targets as well and there will be many trainee teachers who are nervous about teaching the Holocaust for the first time. So if I could start with James Vendon, what, what advice would you give to trainee teachers, ECTs, who may be teaching the Holocaust for the first time? I think my main advice would be, uh, which is the same for teaching anything really, is subject knowledge is key. Subject knowledge gives you confidence. Um, we've already spoken tonight about some of the, the key areas that, you know, you need to understand, but it's it's really subject knowledge. Um, you know, we've talked prior to tonight about the, the lack of time in, um, that's, you know, the time pressures for for trainee teachers in their courses. Um, and, so, and so a lot of the additional work, especially as new teachers, comes that you've got to put it, put it in yourself uh, because, you know, you stood in front of those students um, they look to you as the, as you know, you're the subject expert and yeah, simple for me is, 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 is subject knowledge, um, put in the work, it brings the confidence, the pedagogy can come, you know, that comes with practice and that comes from, as you say, having your mentors and seeing more experienced teachers teach. Um, so James says subject knowledge, Dom, um, I mean, would you agree subject knowledge is the main thing, main piece of advice you'd give trainee teachers, anything else? Oh, definitely. Subject knowledge and then the making sure they're aware of those common misconceptions as well. 
um, because hopefully, uh, obviously, as someone who's a subject lead for the the trust we're in, and also a, a mentor, we obviously work on the questioning and, and things like that with them anyway. But obviously, the subject knowledge for the Holocaust is the key to have that at least a basic overview um, of the events and then an understanding of those misconceptions so you can pick them up in the classroom uh, is really key for me. Tom, can I also come back in there? I'm not sure if I'm allowed to mention names and I won't mention names, but there are some really good um, ITT um, tutors at universities. I mentioned Nottingham and also in Scotland who are um, doing some fantastic work with uh, trainee teachers around the Holocaust. Um, so so that's, that's you know, there's, there's a lot of teachers in a really good place with some exceptional uh, tutoring going on. And that sort of leads on to my last question, I suppose, which is, you know, I, I was very fortunate when I did my PGCE, um, not in either of those places, but um, to have access to some exceptional um you know, specific training on teaching the Holocaust. Um, given that a Holocaust is only become the only compulsory part of a key stage three national curriculum, um, we've seen the new IT what's it called? Oh crikey, the ITT ECF, um, which has been released um yesterday, I think. And I, you know, my school we, our skits attached to our school and I went down there for a something unrelated um, to see how a skit lead and she was just banging her head against a wall um, reading this ITT ECF and just looking at it and go all of that that work we did in create, creating documents for reaccreditation got to do it all over again um, should and one of the big problems um, she had really was the lack of subject specificity within the frameworks for ITT and ECF and there will be some trainee teachers who actually they may depending on how their placement schools work, they may not get the chance to teach the Holocaust at all in their um, early, in their ITT year. Um, I think about the trainee who we currently have on their shorter, on their shorter placement, he's taught the Holocaust twice this year. He's taught it in his first placement school um, before Christmas and with us after Christmas. I think about our main placement trainee who has missed out on teaching the Holocaust with us this year because he is on his shorter placement while we've been teaching it. And then while he's on his shorter placement at another school, they taught, they're teaching the Holocaust after half term. So he won't have actually taught, had a chance to teach the Holocaust to a group of students before he becomes an ECT. So should teaching about the Holocaust become a compulsory part of history ITT? Um, if we could keep your answers quite short on this one, James, did you want to start? A short answer is yes. Uh, Dom? And your answer me is yes as well. Uh, I think um, you've been absolutely fantastic, gentlemen. We've learned so much and it's been really fantastic to get your insights. And as I said right at the start of the show, uh, both of your credentials for talking about this are absolutely fantastic. And... It's been a really informative conversation and hopefully one which we can share with history teachers up and down, not only our county, um, but also um, across the country as well. And I hope it will give some fantastic insight um, to departments and teachers and also SLT links as well in terms of what does it actually mean to teach the Holocaust well? What are the key misconceptions and what are some of the rabbit holes teachers can get down as well? So, James and Dom, um, thank you. You're more than welcome to hang around for the last 20 minutes. Um, because we're going to talk to Catherine um, from America. Um, but I just want to say a big thank you for coming on tonight. Yeah, thank you, Tom. Yeah, thank um, you as well. 
Thank you, Dom. Um, now, um, this show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational Publishing Professional Development Books and Resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324. That's JCTTR2324. Lucy, you knew I wouldn't mess that one up. For 20% off your order, don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Now, I'm absolutely delighted that we are joined by Catherine um, from America. So, Catherine, I hope you're able to unmute yourself and introduce yourself. Um, <clears throat> hello from, uh, uh, I live in the center of America in rural Illinois, right outside St. Louis. I don't know if that's familiar, familiar to anybody. My and... U.S. geography is not that good, I'm afraid. <laughs> I'm pretty much center of the country. I mean, look, I've taught the, I've taught the American West at GCSE. Um, I've got a, I've got a working knowledge of the states, and I can tell you where some things happen. But um, beyond that, it's not that great. Um, and could you just give a bit of an insight into your sort of teaching background, particularly around um, Holocaust education as well? Um, yes, I've been teaching for twenty five years. Um, I have degrees in both English and Holocaust and genocide studies. I've done internships and fellowships at national museums in um, the States. And I'm currently on the board of a local um, Holocaust museum in Indiana, which is right above me. And uh, I teach a Holocaust unit to my sophomores, which lasts about three or four weeks. And then I also have an intensive Holocaust literature class that I teach through St. Louis University as a dual credit college class to high school seniors. And we really delve into Holocaust literature and history and get pretty specific about some of the camps and such during um, during our study. I, I, I want to start with this poll, which came out recently, where one in five young people in America believe that the Holocaust, you know, not, not just that it was exaggerated, but it was a hoax, it never happened. Why do you think that is? I'm going to go back to what one of your um, earlier guests said, and I think part of it deals with the things that come from um, TikTok uh, for a part of it. I think the kids are getting a lot of their, you know, our young students are getting a lot of their information from social media and um, sites like Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, whatever. And those sites are obviously the information is not vetted. Um, the other reason I think in our country is that um, Holocaust education is only mandated to be taught in 23 of our 50 states. And even within that, we only are required to teach it, depending on the state, for a day, two days, three days. The requirements are varied and the education is not, the education for the teachers is not mandated. So what the students get varies um, from coast to coast. And this is all very, I, I teach politics, I teach US politics and, you know, when I teach about federalism and, you know, things like this and the students get quite surprised really when we introduce it for the first time um, in terms of just how, how wildly different some states can be in terms of um, education, but also many other things as well. Um, what, so why? So you say only 23 out of 50 states, um, it's mandatory to talk, teach about the Holocaust. Why do you think in the other 27 it isn't? 
Um, probably, I, I would say that, um, and I don't know this for sure, to be perfectly honest with you, but in um, the states where it is mandated to be taught, people have really gone and fought for that right. It's not, I mean, it is a group of people, you know, um, history teachers, English teachers, and who strongly believe that this education is important. And they have gone to the state and, you know, campaigned to have it become part of the curriculum. And I, I suppose in the 23 states where, you know, teaching about the Holocaust is mandatory and also in your own personal experiences, um, the Holocaust happens in Europe during World War II. America is on another continent. Is there this sort of, is is that a barrier at all in terms of getting students to understand the Holocaust, the geography of it? Um, no, not really. Um, the, the students I teach are pretty interested in it. They um, they love they love everything history. You know, the ones who come and take my class love everything history, and even the um, ones in my regular English classes where I teach this as a unit, they really um, delve into it and are really accepting. And I do think part of that is, um, as one of your earlier guests talked about, um, the personal stories. I know Holocaust survivors. I've brought I've brought them in. Um, I have friendships with them. I've traveled to Europe several times. And so I can bring those experiences into the classroom. And I think that helps bridge the gap. That's really interesting. And sort of you've listened to most, if not all, of the um, conversation with James and Dom as well from the UK. Um, what what do you consider in America to be the most important things to emphasize in terms of a curriculum, in terms of teaching about the Holocaust? What sort of things, what what are the teaching points that you want students to come away with? Um, well, the, one of the, the big things that we really try to focus on is that the Holocaust was not inevitable. It was a choice that, you know, it was it happened through a series of choices um, that people made. And so I think that's one of the largest things that I focus on. Um, I do agree with your other speakers when they they talk about, I always start with pre-war Jewish life. Um, I delve into anti-Semitism and we have big conversations about that now, especially after um, October 7th. It's a huge topic um, in my classrooms. Um, you know, and so we bring anti-Semitism from the forties and earlier into what is going on um, today. Um, I also talk about upstanders and bystanders. I have some great survivor stories that are perfect examples of that. And I do um, jump into post-war Holocaust as well. Uh, I'm blessed because I have a whole semester. So I can jump into those things in some depth with my students. Yeah, I mean, I think it's absolutely fantastic that you're giving it so much time and it's taking such an important, um, you know, such an important pride of place, really, um, within your teaching. And I suppose, do do I mean, I, I just what, you know, do, do you find that some students are more responsive to it than others? Or do you find that, generally speaking, all every student that you teach understands sort of a magnitude of what they're learning about? Um, in the perfect world, it would be every student would understand that magnitude with every lesson. However, that is definitely not the case. Um, I would say that most of my students are intrigued by the conversations that we have, um, you know, within the classroom. 
and they will participate in those. But it's it's the students who do take the dual credit, you know, the dual credit literature class that understand that they're going to really be delving into the history and doing a lot of reading and doing a lot of research and doing a lot of writing about it and trying, you know, so that they can start to articulate what they are learning and what they are understanding. Those students, as a general rule, all jump in, you know, feet first and understand what they're getting into. In my regular classes, um, where I just do the unit, I would say they're all very interested. However, depending upon their um, willingness to delve and do the work, um, depends on how deep they go into it, how deeply they go into it. And how do you, how do you sort of combine, because you are an English teacher first and foremost, how do you combine writing with Holocaust education? And, um, you know, is there anything you do in particular? Um, I do. Well, we do quite a few um, research projects. Um, for example, in my um, literature class, it just started, you know, our semester started at the beginning of January. And so we have been going through an overview of the Holocaust and we create a timeline um, that's built by the um, one of the museums in D.C. We um, <clears throat> do a lot of this background work. And then for my first project for them, they each take a part of like Holocaust history, you know, propaganda where they they really um drill down on the definition of the Holocaust as stated by one museum. Um, they look at survivor stories. Um, and what's the last one? I can't think of what the fourth group is right now. But they do research and then they will make presentations. Um, we also study different camps and then they, and you know, we look at personal stories and diaries from different camps and then they come up with a research project and write a six to eight page um, paper researching some aspect of what they learned in you know one of our camp units like we study terrazine very in depth and then they take an aspect of that and um write a paper on that so we just we do a lot of research papers mm. and um i'm just looking in particular at um the never again education act um, yes which was signed into law in may 2020 um, introduced in the House of Representatives by Carolyn Maloney, Democrat, and it established a dedicated federal fund through the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum to provide teachers with resources and training necessary to teach students the important lessons of the Holocaust. Um, it was it gained garnered the support of over eighty by bipartisan Senate co-sponsors and over three hundred House co-sponsors. Passed in the House. Um, 395 to 5 and passed Senate um, by a voice vote in May. Um, what impact has the Never Again Education Act had as bipartisan legislation on Holocaust education in the USA? Um, I don't know like 100% on that. I do know that um, I think it's made it just from the chatter I've gotten from my, you know, from my Holocaust um, groups that it's made accessing materials much easier. It's made the ability to bring Holocaust education into the classroom easier. However, um, with other things that are going on politically in our country at the moment, um, some of that Holocaust education has been kind of pushed to the side uh, because, you know, because of book banning and things such as that that we've had going on around here. But I do, oh, go ahead. 
do you want to tell us more about that? <laughs> well, I, it's it's interesting. Um, I look at what's going. I mean, like I said, I teach in a rural district, um, and I'm in a I'm in a in a what, what's called a blue state. So we don't have that book banning going on here. Any library book can come in and um, we don't, I've never, we've never had an issue with that. I teach some very controversial books and I've never had an issue, but I do know in other states around me that teachers have tried to teach books that I don't even, that I do not see a problem with. And then parents will complain and then the books get taken off the shelf or out of the school for various reasons. And it makes um, teaching any, any kind of curriculum difficult. Mm. I'm trying to think back now when I taught about U.S. Um, when I taught U.S. politics, and I remember I think it was in Texas where there was a sort of a law passed whereby if you wanted to have books in your library about the Holocaust, you essentially had to had had books on the opposite of what they called the opposite, and the only opposite mm -hmm. about teaching the Holocaust is Holocaust denial. Yes, and I, I've had um, people like pose that question to me on Twitter when I talk about teaching the Holocaust. And, you know, they say, well, do you teach the other side? And I and I'm I always try to respond to go, well, yes, I, I do. I teach what the Germans were doing at the time and the ones who were not considered Nazis. So that's what I consider the other side. I you know, and I know that they are talking about Holocaust deniers. I try not to address that. Like I said, we don't have that issue here. Um, I do know places like Texas and Florida, and I want to say some schools in Missouri have had um, those um, problems. And that's where our cohort of Holocaust educators in our country end up. They go on the legislature floor in the different states to try to get those laws and those regulations overturned. I tell you, I, this is an absolutely fascinating conversation. And we do still have a couple more minutes. Uh, I mean, it, it's really obviously a way in which America works in terms of states and being able to sort of set do what they do, different things, etc. Compared to the UK, well, not the UK, compared to England, where we have the national curriculum, um, you know, that's very different. And but also, you're sort of looking at sort of you know how some states have different attitudes but also you know at, it, it has clearly been taken seriously at a federal level um with um legislation being passed as well um is there is there anything that could be done either at the federal level or at the state level to raise the profile of holocaust education any further in your view oh i definitely think so i think one of the most important things they can do as far as holocaust education is providing and, you know, is providing the training for it. Um, as some of your guests mentioned earlier, you know, just in, just to throw this movie out, The Boy in the Striped Pajamas. Um, and, and then there are other books. When teachers are allowed to teach about the Holocaust, they fall to what they know. And so they pull in things that they think are accurate and they, they haven't been, you know, they, they don't vet them and they don't check, you know, check them for authenticity. And... I think that kind of education is vitally important because you are giving students um, many misconceptions about what happened in history. And it's and I will I just want to go on to say that um, like the Holocaust Museum in D.C. started a program. Ooh, I want to say back in 2015 ish um, to see what we knew in our country 
about the Holocaust. And so they scoured newspapers like from coast to coast. And you can go access a lot of those articles to see exactly who knew what during the Holocaust and how, you know, and how we chose not to handle things. Mm-hmm. I want I want to say a huge, huge thank you, um, Catherine, for joining us um, today. Um, been been a, been a real pleasure to have you on and to hear about Holocaust education in the USA. And I certainly wish you all the very best as well um, as you continue to teach it. Clearly, you've got excellent credentials on this, and you know you've been teaching for a while. And yeah, I I, I hope it continues to go well for you. Well, thank you very much. It was a it was quite an enlightening conversation. And I, I do want to say that I agreed with almost everything um your you know, you and your guests talked about. I mean, like the things that you want to cover about Holocaust in, in England really mirror what, you know, the messages that we want to get across in um in the States. Thank you for that. And, um, you know, I, I hope we can get you on as well another time. I know, you know, you you're, as an English teacher, we've got quite a lot of English teachers um, at Teachers Talk Radio. And I'm sure we could get you on to talk about think about writing and research and things like that as well. Um, but, and thank you very much for joining us tonight as well um, on this show. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, and a, a huge thank you again to Dom and to James um, for joining us, me a little bit close to home um, from Nottingham and Nottinghamshire as well. Um, and Catherine as well, joining us from America as well. Um, it's been um, a really interesting and informative conversation. And yeah, it is what it is one of those things, isn't it? Whereby we've had three fantastic guests who really know their stuff and have been able to really enlighten us. And I hope whether you've listened live tonight or whether you listened back on demand, that you learn something as well. Um, a big thank you, of course, to our sponsors, John Cat, um, for helping us to run these shows, um, including getting us the Bet Show last week as well, um, where I know that Tom Rogers and the gang had a fantastic time. Um, I believe I might be back on the 14th of February, still to be confirmed. Um, in terms of other shows I've got coming up, I'm just going to have a very quick look now, get the notes up. up. Um, on the 28th of February, we're going to be looking in at phonics in secondary schools um, and how secondary schools can support the weakest readers. I've got Charlie Duckett and Adam Levick lined up for that. And we're also going to be looking at some t- efficient marking and feedback strategies in written subjects. We've got Dan Smith and David Brown lined up for that. Um, we're going to have a little lovely chat soon with Farhan Shah, who was on one of my very first Teachers Talk radio shows in June 2021. He's going to talk about leaving teaching um, as part of a Where Are They Now feature. He was an ECT or NQT when he joined me in 2021. Um, 13th of March, we're joined by David Scales from Australia Academies Trust. He's going to be talking about um, turnaround schools and why senior leaders are attracted to schools, which may have a lower than average rep reputation in the local area and the hard work that senior leaders do to turn around schools and on the 27th of March I'm going to be joined by a variety of guests to talk about teaching about the British Empire but that's it from me tonight Uh, thank you very much for joining us Um, I do hope you enjoyed listening back as a podcast and I hope that those who listened live enjoyed it as well I'll see you in two weeks time You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.